You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where each week we take the polls of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, if you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Jim last week, where we discussed the reasons behind the unprecedented moves in the volatility space and how they're impacting different strategies, including trend following. And Jim also shared his thoughts on the critical importance of positioning and why volatility strategies have been facing some tougher times in the last couple of years. So you don't want to miss that one for sure. Also, I would encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where we had a thought-provoking conversation with Rana Forora, global business columnist and author of the book, Homecoming, The Path to Prosperity in a Post-Global World. Really a conversation that will no doubt make you think about where we are heading as a planet. Lastly, I am excited to invite you to enjoy the CTA miniseries where Alan and I have had the privilege of speaking with the decision makers of most of the largest CTAs in the world. We dive deep into the most pressing topics and have gained unprecedented access to these industry leaders who share some exceptional insights to the CTA world. So head over once you're done listening to Rich and I today and check out some of those episodes. Rich, it is wonderful to be back with you today. Unexpected, I will say, because of course there was someone else who were meant to be here today, but unfortunately Andrew couldn't make it. And you very kindly just raised your hand and stepped up to it. So thank you so much for doing that. Uh, I hope you're well. Um, and uh, I guess you're still enjoying some summer weather where you are. Yes, Neil, still still good summer weather over here. But well, it's it's becoming more summer weather over here. But uh, uh, yeah, it's all good on my front, Neil. I've I've had a you know a pretty interesting month, uh, which we'll be discussing t today in a podcast. And I've been loving your Top Traders Unplugged series. Uh, it's given so much fresh food for thought for different research projects that I'm sort of rapidly engaged in now, thanks to all of the contributions by your great guests. So uh, yeah, it's a great time to be a trend follower. It's been an interesting month, especially for those with fixed income, but uh, uh, my battleship's doing well. So uh, yeah, very happy. <laughs> great to hear. And uh, and yes, we have an, an interesting lineup, of course, inspired by the last month's event. Um, but that's great. It certainly helps us try and, and uh, dive into some of the aspects of trend following that maybe we haven't uh, seen uh, for, you know, 18 months uh, or so. But before we do that, let me just maybe give some thoughts about what's been going on in the last uh, month or so. It's only been a few weeks since the last bank failure in the United States and Switzerland, and the great banking crisis of 2023 already feels like a distant memory. Now, did the Fed and the Swiss authorities' actions prevent a sure disaster? Not sure. Or was the crisis as severe as anticipated, not sure either. Really, it's impossible to know the answer to that, but their early action appears, for now at least, to have averted any potential meltdown of the banking system. But the question is, was it too early? And is the equity and bond bear market still only cops? 
The recent banking crisis have been resolved, but question remains about whether it's too early to breathe a sigh of relief. The bear markets in equity and bonds could still continue, and if they do, the impact on the global economy may reveal more surprises in the banking sector. SVB Financial's exceptionally high level of uninsured deposit is considered an extreme, but the underlying problem of a mismatch between the banking industry's assets and liabilities is real. Should interest rates rise again, the problem only gets worse and SVB is not the only bank that invested in supposedly safe government paper when interest rates were near zero. The crisis in March may signal a new era of illiquidity and if it unfolds, it could be too big to bail. Now, during the great financial crisis, regulators attempted to bail out financial firms as early as November 2007, but as we know now, the broader U.S. stock market still declined 54% by March 2009. This suggests that timing is crucial when it comes to rescue actions. This time around, the Fed is attempting to intervene even earlier, with its balance sheet already at almost $9 trillion, significantly larger than during the GFC when it was less than $2 trillion. In the week of March 15 this year, the Fed's assets increased by more than $150 billion. That's the largest weekly increase in history. Of course, only time will tell if they're successful. Now, let me bring you in here, Rich, just to touch on some of the bigger things before we dive into all the nitty-gritty of it that kind of caught your uh, attention. You are also a seasoned market watcher, trend follower, but, you know, there was a few interesting moves that we may have forgotten about. <laughs> yes, look. The story in March, obviously, was mostly about fixed income. And as you said just previously, it's clear that the Fed are taking this sort of immediate action whenever there's a disturbance in their realm. And it's interesting. I was looking at the performance returns of a lot of the CGAs and the trend followers in particular over the months of March, and there is considerable dispersion in those returns. So the real question for this particular correction in March relates to, I believe, the level of exposure that a CGA or a program has towards the fixed income sector, because the way I saw it, particularly with my portfolio, was that if you weren't heavily exposed in fixed income, the corrective moves and the high volatility in fixed income was actually quite restricted to the fixed income sector. It didn't flow through to the other markets. So uh, in my particular portfolio, I was very fortunate in that I had little exposure. Uh, now, that wasn't through design. You know, that was through the fact that there were very few products in, in the game I play uh, that are available in the fixed income area. But I, I would in general, say I'd, I'd, I'd probably logically prefer to have a smaller allocation of fixed income than, say, commodities, because I see that there is big diversification potential in the individual commodities as a group, and probably a bit less diversification potential in fixed income as a group, because fixed income tends to be solely sort of related to interest rate movements and credit risk. Uh, they're sort of a, a limited sort of... Uh, a realm of of difference in the fixed income sector, where in the commodity sector you get, you know, the difference between grain grain production, harvest, weather events, heavy metals, all of these different things, which give greater 
diversification potential. But in my particular portfolio, because I didn't have this big exposure to fixed income, I found that my my portfolio did quite well for March. And uh, two of the trends that I've been writing for quite a few years now, being orange juice and London sugar, just continue to extend their trends. And uh, so they've, they've been holding up my portfolio very well in the month of March. And really, there wasn't much not much more news from my front, from my battleship in relation to the events of March, but certainly for those programs that were in fixed in- income, there was, there's a story to tell. So so let me, okay, so first of all, let me just give you people a, a little bit of, of um, examples of how unusual, let's put it that way, uh, the moves were. So for example, uh, a one-month bill in the U.S., which at the time, so this is around, say, March 8th, 9th. Um, so this would have been an April 11th, 2023 bill, so about a month. On March 9th, that was trading at, an in, at a yield of 4.58%, just before the SVB meltdown. Now, the same bill, again, for April 11th this year, traded as low as 3.55 on March 27th, on March 27, and hold your hat, and it's closing out the month. Now, I wrote down at 4.77, and I wonder that if that is correct or whether I meant to say 3.77, but it is. No, I think you're 4.77. Yes, I think it is 4.77, which is just mind-boggling. Um, uh, but, of course, that has something to do with where the Fed's rates are, and, of course, as at maturity, they're going to be very similar. So it is probably 4.77, which makes it even more mind-boggling. Anyway, then you had the two-year uh, U.S. Treasury notes. Um, on March 8th, uh, they closed at 5.07%. Then they rallied, and yields dropped 123 basis points to March 23rd, down to 3.84%. And that closed out the month at 4.08%. So this is just to show, um, I guess, that we really talk about some extraordinary moves in that space. Now, then I picked up on something you said, which I think is quite interesting. You said this thing about that you like commodities and 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 and, and so do I, of course. But when I think about what's been going on in, in our world for the last you know decade or two. You could kind of argue that some of the biggest outlier moves has actually been in the fixed income space. And what I mean by that is nobody expected, you know, yields to become negative and and all of those things. So if you think about the extraordinary moves, and on top of that, then the reverse, nobody expected yields to rise so quickly as they did last year. So in some ways, I guess it is you could argue that there has been some great outliers in fixed income. Yeah, well, there's certainly been huge volatility. We've never seen this volatility before in a fixed income sector. So, you know, something you say, which is, a, you know, a very poignant point in that, uh, you know, if, if you're uh, developing your uh, rules-based systematic process using an extensive backtest, you've got to be careful because there are regimes we've never experienced in the backtest, which we've been presented with today, that clearly there is no precedent uh, for what's happened. And um, so, you know, th- that to me shows the importance of not just relying on your backtest, but doing these what-if scenarios to say, what if this happened? What if this happened? Rather than relying on what history has presented. 
it's good to apply a sort of a logical sensitivity test to some of the assumptions in your your back test so that you don't slip into that that potential trap of finding that you overfit to um, favorable regimes of the past. Like for instance, um, with bonds, we know that we've had a stellar performance of of bonds in relation to trend following over the last decade or so. There's been numerous opportunities in, in fixed income for trend following opportunities. But if you could imagine, if you are relying on a back test um, and you aren't taking heed of the fact that um, your back test might be over-optimizing your portfolio construction to have a, a higher percentage of fixed income in that portfolio because of its very solid performance, you could potentially find yourself in a trap when those those regimes change on a pin like they have done in March and you find, goodness me, I never expected this level of uh, correlated behaviour to occur when the bond snapped like that. Um, but, you know, th- these are all things that you've got to take care of in your assumptions about what that back test tells you. And if you know what I mean. No, no, absolutely. And and actually, it, it kind of raises an interesting point because you talk about how trend followers, without a doubt, uh, have benefited from uh, a very persistent trend in uh, in fixed income over the last couple of decades. Not, you know, not a trend that didn't have its corrections and reversals and, and counter trends and all that for sure, but it was certainly an area where trend followers in general uh, were able to harvest uh, a lot of uh, returns. And and it reminded me about a paper written um, before 2014 for sure uh, by Roy Niederhofer about how trend followers uh, would be unable to make money when interest rates starting to go up. And he argued that and I'm teasing this because we interviewed Roy uh, last week. It was a fantastic conversation. Uh, and of course, because um, I spoke with him about this in 2014, uh, the first time he was on the podcast, uh, of course, back then, there was no argument because we had not seen a period of really consistent rising uh, yields. So there is no real way of telling whether the, what he wrote back then was right or not. I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to take the thunder out of the episode. Uh, All I will say is that watch this space because it was at the time something that really, I think, influenced uh, a lot of investors as to the, you know, the outlook for longer term trend followers. Uh, Of course, back then they had no, no, none of us knew um, that uh, interest rates would continue to fall for another six years or seven years, whatever, um, which also is an important point. But it, it was just fascinating to have the opportunity and Roy is a great sport, so he uh, he definitely um, commented in depth about you know that particular statement paper. Let's leave that for now, and let's turn to the month of March because it is month end as we are recording. Now we don't have the final final numbers because they take an extra day to come out. Of course, you you know roughly what what you did. You followed some of the. Intramonth numbers, of course, I know how the month turned out from our side. But if I was just going to put some words to it, of course, influence to somewhat uh, what I uh, experience, uh, you know, inside our firm on a day by day basis. But it was an interesting month because on the 8th of March, I'm sure there were others than us, but actually we were making new 
all-time highs on the 8th of March. <laughs> and then, uh, little did we know, and little did our models know, that something was brewing over in Silicon Valley. Um, and, uh, of course, fixed-income markets truly experienced some exceptional moves in the following days, which, of course, sometimes will catch trend followers and other strategies, for that matter, on the wrong side of the move. Um, and, of course, uh, in in our case, in most trend followers' case, uh, we certainly ended up giving back what we had made in February and, and, and a few extra percent, but not too dramatic, as I'm sure we'll see in a few days. But also, I want to put the numbers in context before people, um, before they sort of uh, start to come out and just remind people that even though it was and, and most likely will be a, you know, a healthy down month for many managers, there were in the last 12 months, there were actually up months. And I can at least count two in the last 12 months that were bigger to the upside than what we saw to the downside in February, oh, sorry, in March. So people should also take that into account. Uh, now, the thing is that when we have these uh, periods of time, it reminds people that there will be uh, give back periods when it comes to um, investment strategies like trend following. And sometimes they can happen over just a few days, just like you can have some really exceptional uh, upside performance that occur out of the blue. And it kind of goes to the point that we talk about so many times on the podcast, and that is, this is why you can't time trend following. Uh, you really just need to have it and stick with it and make it part of your core uh, allocation. The other thing that actually is somewhat positive when we look at a month like March, and that is it gives us as an industry, as managers, a chance to showcase how different models, how different risk management regimes are designed to respond to these extreme markets. Because as you pointed out, Rich, these moves were really not in any of our data sets. Uh, you could argue so a firm like Don, because it's been around since the 70s, that uh, the the last time we had such a move was, I think, in 1982, um, that maybe we had something similar in the database. But I don't even think that financial futures on bonds were available in 82. I think it was just commodity futures back then. I think the fixed income futures came later. So I'm not even sure that we can fully say that uh, even a firm like us uh, have seen this before. Uh, so so it was uh, quite interesting. Of course, another thing it, it highlights, and I don't know if we if we dare to go there, Rich, uh, is this thing about how models react to dynamic position sizing versus static position sizing. It is an interesting time, uh, completely from an objective point of view, no, no right, no wrong, just to how they're different. Um, and... Um, and I think when I reflect on what what we've been through and what I shared with my clients uh, as well, it's just that it it seems to me, and I don't know about you, but it seems to me that it's very it feels similar to the three day counter trend period we had between November twenty sixth and November twenty ninth, two thousand twenty one, when the Omicron variant uh, was announced to the world. And back then, it certainly felt incredibly uncomfortable to see performance move that quickly. Um, not least because it came at the back of, you know, softer a softer performance period for for the industry over a few years, but it also showed that these strategies are designed to be incredibly resilient. Uh, something I I think people underestimate and and doesn't give us uh, as much credit for as I think a lot of these designers 
uh, and researchers uh, should get. Um, and also, I think that might be the reason why, as far as I know, I'm sure people will correct me, but as far as I know, this is probably the longest running kind of true alternative or hedge fund strategy that we have, where you have continuous track records for about 50 years now. I don't think there's many other strategies that can claim that. Um, and of course, finally, as a little uh, maybe hope out there, and that is what happened back in November 2021, which was unpleasant for those three days, it actually also marked the beginning of one of the strongest performance periods for trend followers on record. So lots of things to take away from that. I want to hear your your thoughts, but let me just give people um, you know, where we stand in terms of the, 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 the numbers. So my own trend barometer finished the month at 25. It's definitely very weak, confirming that it, you know, it, it wasn't, it's not going to be a good month. We know that. The beta 50 uh, index is only as of Thursday night down about 5%, down less than 4% of the year. Not a big deal in my opinion. Uh, it was up 15% almost last year. Uh, the SGCTA index down about 64 um, as of Thursday for the month, uh, down about 5.2 for the uh, year, was up 20% last year. Uh, the trend index down 7.58% for the month, down 7.16% for the year, but I was up 27% last year. And then the short-term traders index down about 2% for the month, down about 2.4 for the year, and it was up 11% last year. Now, the great thing for those who use trend following and CTAs within a multi-asset portfolio where they have stocks and bonds, they probably didn't lose any money this month because MSCI World was up 2.8%, up now 7% for the year and a quarter, actually. The World Government Bond Index up 2.55%, and the S&P 500 up 3.51 for the month, up 7% for the year. So if you were having, say, a 20% allocation to CTAs, which, by the way, we'll come to later in the show, you probably didn't feel much a pain, if any, in a month like this. Anyways, Rich, that was a long monologue for me, so I'm going to take some tea and you can chime in. <laughs> no, it was good to put a context on it because um, I was just looking, listening to the figures you gave for SGCTA um, index and the SG trend index. So down around 6.5 or 6.4 or 7% down around 7% for the trend. That that ten, tends to, to me to say that there, there's going to be dispersion in those groups, uh, maybe with some that have double-digit um, losses for the month and some that have small amounts for the month. So when we get these events, um, when I talk to people, a lot of them say, well, as medium to long-term trend followers, when we get these short, sharp corrections, there's not much you can do about it because our models are slow to acclimatize to those short, sharp corrections. So inevitably, we get these painful shock reversals. Uh, if the the trend extends, then we get the benefit of Katie Kaminsky's crisis alpha coming with these enduring trends. But during these short, sharp corrections, uh, we can be exposed. But a lot of them say, well, that's just part and parcel of the way we trade and you shouldn't worry about it. Now, I, I tend to think, well, look, this isn't the first time this has happened. As you've said, uh, we got a, a similar event, not, not in fixed income, but we got a similar event in Volmageddon 
um, in 2000, February 2018. And as you rightly said, that Black Friday, I think, November 2021, I remember crying to you that day after that event uh, with the impact on those short, sharp um, reversals for the Omicron variant um, on my portfolio. I, I think that was about right, if I can remember correctly. So these things, you know, they occurred. We've seen these things occur. And interestingly, when I went back to your Winton episode with Top Traders Unplugged, he referred to a similar event occurring back in 2007 um, where they took note, uh, Winton took note of that event and took adaptive steps to address that event. And they found that when Volmageddon came along and when um, uh, the, uh, the, the bond shock recently came along in, in March or whatever, um, they were much more prepared for that event. This is what I think we need to do. There is some learning we can do from these events because if, for instance, we find that we do face double-digit losses in a particular month and when we're looking at, at our monthly returns, um, the idea of a trend follower is because we cut losses short and let profits run, we never want to see adverse months get too extended. Uh, we want to see large moves in beneficial months like 10 20%, 30% returns for a, a beneficial month. But we don't want to see minus 10 or minus 20% for a month. We'd far prefer to see a minus 4 or a minus 5 for a month. So if we find that uh, uh, we have these events and we get these double-digit adverse exposures, it tells us information. It tells us well, we clearly were um, overexposed to that volatility shock or that, that corrective shock. That's why we, we got this large impact on our PL. And this inevitably, to me, tells me that there's usually a way around this when you look at the correlations in your portfolio or the leverage in your portfolio. Um, this should really make us say, well, to reduce the impact of these corrective events, look at, let's look at the leverage of our portfolio. Is it too high or is it too high in particular in relation to this asset class? What is the reason for this large double-digit loss in this month? These are all great questions we should be asking because if we are risk managers, which we all say we are in, in our trend-following world, we want to treat these short, sharp, corrective shocks seriously and not just say, well, that's too bad. That's that's what happens with a trend follower. We want to try and learn from them and see if we can adapt our processes in some way to make our portfolios less correlated or less exposed to a particular asset class. And there are, I think, um, certain learnings that we can take from this into how to make our portfolios robust to stand up better to these short-term corrective whipsaws, as well as take full advantage of the, the major crisis events from extended trends. Uh, I don't think we should just relax on our, on our, uh, our havocs and say, well, we couldn't do anything about that and we're going to catch up over the long term. So, say la vie. What do you think? I'm going to push back a little bit on that. Um, not, I'm, not, I'm not pushing back on the idea that we should always learn. And of course, this data will be in the data set suddenly, so our models will automatically learn from it to some degree, right? But but I do want to push back about this idea that we can remove the unpleasant short-term periods 
and it does not have an effect on the long-term performance. I actually think it does. So it's finding that balance because I certainly remember on our side that we have we were asked after Volmageddon to say, well, isn't there something we can we can we can do about it? Um and and let's just maybe remind people what happened Volmageddon. Volmageddon was in February of 2018. And it was a period where probably losses were a little bit bigger than what they were in March of this month. It just felt unpleasant. But, uh, and I can only put this in relative terms because, uh, you know, we don't want to talk about specific performance. Uh, but I just want to say that on our side, we gave back only about half of what we had made the previous four months. So over a five-month period, we were still up pretty healthily. And... Um, and you could say uh, again with with last year. I mean, yeah, we we're giving back, as I said, a little bit more than what we made in February. But last year was a fantastic year on our side. So you know, should we do something to dampen the opportunities for delivering really strong returns when there are lots of trends, uh, even if they're you know, uh, of course, it always has a bigger impact when it's fixed income because there just are more fixed income markets and in, that we can trade compared to. You know, there aren't that many orange juice we can trade other than one, for example, right? So there are obviously fixed income and, and equities to some extent, uh, for some people, currencies can have a big impact, right? But but I, I, I will say, I don't think you can just, mm, you can't just focus on the short-term picture and say, yeah, we should do something to address this period or that period. Uh, we do need to look at how are we going to deliver depending on what your objective is, of course. But if your objective is to deliver the uh, the best K-guy you can with a, with reasonable volatility, with reasonable drawdowns, et cetera, et cetera, if it means that sometimes you're going to, you know, have a double-digit down month, which, by the way, is only, you know, random because it's a calendar month. It could have been it could have been two down months of 6% and we wouldn't have noticed it, right? It's just It just happens to be one month. And and also going back to this thing that we we like to talk about, Rich, and that is keeping things simple. And I think if you try to engineer too much about fixing a Volmageddon, fixing a SVB collapse, fixing this, fixing that, then you are starting to optimize more to some extent or putting in more bells and whistles uh, to do that. That's that's inevitable. And so you have to you have to weigh that as well. Now, for those who can do it without giving up anything in the long run, you know, fantastic. I think very few people can do that, but that's just my personal opinion. Does yes, that... look, yeah, no, no, I, I do agree with you. And, uh, but I, I'm just thinking that um, it's always important to look at correlations in our portfolio, not simply what historical correlations have told us, but more importantly, look at ways to break down the correlation structure of your portfolio. So uh, we'll probably get into that later in one of the topics we, we might be talking about where we're dealing with ensembles of systems, but that is one way to naturally break down the level of correlation in a portfolio. So you know, as, as a, a trend follower, Niels, um, I, I say to myself, well, if I did get a double-digit, well, the good thing is with a trend follower, this is, this is a plus to the trend following community. If we find that a month, we do find we have a double-digit downturn, let's say we've got a 15% downturn, a horrible month for us. Well, we haven't seen that um, frequently in our historic record, but it's possible. 
What you do find is that uh, with that event occurring, uh, your risk is released from your portfolio because you're exiting your positions. Now, that's a good sign because if that, that regime of whipsaw continues going forward, you don't find that the next month you also have a 15% impact and the next month and also a 15% impact. Because you've released risk from your portfolio from that one event, we don't find that staying in that um, particular whipsaw regime makes us necessarily go backwards any further than we did with our initial hit, if that makes sense. So that's a really good sign with those trend-following portfolios that deliberately release risk from the portfolio. So then the question I ask is, all right, was, was the portfolio using stops on their positions? If not, maybe they find that um, that isn't totally released. The risk isn't totally released from their portfolio. So, you know, we've, we've heard a lot of these discussions with the different um, program managers uh, through your series. Everyone has their all their different nuances. There's a lot to, to consider uh, in these questions because they're not easy to respond to. But all I'd like to say is <clears throat> if I got this major hit, I don't want it again. And what is there ways to maintain the the necessary properties that I've been getting from my program, um, but at the same time address those weaknesses and <clears throat> without necessarily having to go to tail risk protection, without necessarily having to go to aggressive short-term models, are there other ways we can do it? Is there ways through um, uh, reducing levels of correlation in our portfolio through um, further diversification? So, the idea being that uh, we become less and less exposed to a single asset class with a broader diversification approach, provided they're uncorrelated return streams. Is there ways to embed some risk mitigation mechanisms within the portfolio itself to ensure that we've released all the risk from that corrective phase? There are these steps. And, and secondly, when we utilise that data from those corrective periods like Volmageddon and uh, the events we've talked about, when we update our models, refresh our models uh, through an adaptive workflow process, that might take into account some of the necessary tweaks we've got to do in our systems to make the impacts less impactful um, in future events. So it, the thing I'd be calling out for is don't just assume that these are a necessary pain of trend following. Consider ways that through a, an adaptive process, we can get better at handling these events. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I agree. I'm, I'm thinking as you speak, I'm thinking that, yeah, I mean, it would have been nice to have a bit less exposure to fixed income last month for sure. On, 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 and, 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 and I agree with the idea of further diversification. I agree with that. But I also think that further diversification, to some extent, will dilute returns, meaning the fact that some managers made so much money last year, well, it was because they had a decent exposure in some of these fixed income markets. We know of one manager that did exceptionally well, and all of that performance and more came from three short-term interest rate contracts. Talk about concentration, right? But it made a lot of money, and... If they manage to get out well, well, you know, that's still a good, that's still a bet you would want to take if you want pure trend, right? If you don't want pure trend and you don't want your 50% plus return in 2022 
and you're happy with something that is a much smoother, um, and you can certainly obtain that through um, more diversification, I'm sure, um, then that's fine as well. There's nothing wrong with it. I think what was a little bit unusual, which we haven't seen for a while, but I don't think it should be expected not to happen again, what was unusual is that we have been talking about for almost 10 years on the podcast about this term crisis alpha, but we what and and you know and indirectly we always talk about it as an equity crisis and then what shows up is a fixed income <laughs> crisis. <one> crisis. <laughs> so, you know, it, it just goes to but, but this is what I, I said in the beginning and what I love about what we do and why I think we all have so much passion for this space and that is well even if we haven't seen this for quite a while, the, the models were perfectly fine. They're designed to deal with these unexpected changes. And this is what divergent strategies uh, are built to do. They thrive on change, right? Uh, a convergent strategy, I haven't seen any numbers yet, but if there were some convergent strategies in fixed income, uh, I don't really want to um, speculate uh, as to how how serious that could have been. Um, there'll be some big well, negative skew events. There'll be with, some with big them. negatives. And um, again, that's the feature of their strategy. Maybe they've had a good 10 years of, of, of return, but you know, they have a different risk return profile than we do. So it's obviously all about mixing these things up and there will be some short-term managers for sure that did really well last month. Um, and kudos to them. They suffered for a decade or more. And now they're having their, you know, moment of, of sunshine. Um, and that's great. I mean, that's great. But then again, you have to ask yourself, could you as an investor have, have endured a 10, 14 year drawdown and then have, you know, a couple of really great years in the last uh, two or three years because things are changing? Maybe, maybe not. So it's all about preference. It's all about striking that balance. Uh, and it is for investors to find those managers that they are most likely to hold on to. Uh, I think that's what it comes down to. Because again, it's it's there's no wrong or right per se here. It's all about preference. Um, and as we've talked about many times, the best strategy for people to be invested in, the best investment that they are invested in, is the one that they can hold on to and sleep sleep soundly at night with. All right. Do you want to dive into your topics? Well, I suppose... Which is a continuation. Is It is a somewhat a continuation of what we talked about just now, but we uh, we, we, we certainly, and we can, uh, I think topic number one, I think we've kind of probably dealt with that, but then we move on to topic number two. And I want to set the stage a little bit because we wrote about it in our blog post that we posted uh, a couple of weeks ago, Rich, and that people can go and find. Uh, on uh, on the Top Traders Unplugged website, and they, they should read it, hopefully. But it is actually also a question that Alan and I have been talking with all these um, friends of ours from the industry about. And, and, and I guess the way you could put it is to say, okay, we know Sharp is important, but which Sharp is the one we want to optimize for? Is it our Sharp as a manager? Or are we trying to design strategies that will actually improve the Sharp of the portfolio the most? You know, that I think is a very relevant question. Um, and I'd love to hear kind of what you've what you found when you crunch the numbers and we can talk about it. Yes. Yeah, so look, this was an interesting exercise. So what we did, we looked at the performance of 
as many as we could get uh, of the program managers in the um, uh, the SGCTA index. I mean, we, we call that the TTU CTA index, if you remember the news. But um, we, there was a couple that were excluded from there, like ISAM and uh, uh, maybe one other, uh, where we, we just weren't able to get the data. But for all of the others, we were able to get the data from their inception up until current day. So interestingly, some of the um, programs in the, um, the CTA index such as PIMCO, have got a pretty short track record, you know, three or four years or so. Um, but some of them, of course, have a 20-year track record plus. But um, what we found was that um, when we um, we looked at the, the performance of each of those programs uh, from their inception to current day and recorded their sharp, uh, so we had around, uh, I think in this example, close to 20 um, programs here, which we evaluated their program SHARP in isolation. Then we looked at the SHARP over a similar um, date range for the 6040 portfolio. Then what we did was uh, we said, well, let's blend 20% of each of the, or, well, of any individual program into the 6040 portfolio. And let's look at what the, the blended SHARP of a 80% allocation to a 60-40 portfolio and a 20% allocation to the nominated program, let's see what that would generate in terms of its program sharp or portfolio sharp. And then let's see if that portfolio sharp has improved or has increased or decreased from um, the performance of the 60-40 portfolio. Now, what was really surprising to me, Niels, was that no matter which program we took, Every single one of those programs, those which um, you know, we, we can regard as trend-following programs after after we've heard of uh, a lot of them from your TTU index. Yeah, I would say with a couple of exceptions, there's a couple of short-term managers in the list we did. Yeah, fair enough. We'll chuck them in as well. But uh, when we look at it, uh, we see that in every instance the sharp ratio increases. Now, what is important is that. It's a material increase when we look at those with a longer-term track record. So um, the the period from inception to current day, if we've got a 20-year period, for a lot of them, we're looking at 30% increases plus in the sharp ratio uh, from a 60-40 portfolio uh, with an inclusion of 20% of that trend-following program in that portfolio. Now, that's a massive increase, a material increase in sharp. And... What, what was surprising to me, Niels, was that it, uh, we didn't get any negatives here. It was across the board. Every single program showed this improvement in, in sharp yeah, ratio. Not, uh, uh, just to clarify, not everyone improved by that much, right? So we had a lot of people kind of between 20 and 30% improvement. We had one that didn't improve, but that's a shorter term um, uh, track record we were using. Um, and we had some that only improved slightly and i think when people go and read the blog post they might be surprised to see who they were um but but anyways uh, uh, we can't talk about that specifically here but no negatives exactly there were no negatives that's very important to stress and so uh look it wasn't just the fact that so so that that impressed me for a start and then i thought well, okay, for those people that have got a slight concern over the use of the sharp ratio, even for a portfolio, and you know that's a discussion we can probably get into a bit further in this conversation, but I want to see if the KGAR improves as well as the sharp ratio. Um, so 
Uh, I had a look. I, I didn't record it in that report, but we do find that the CAGR is improving um, in those programs as well as the SHARP uh, with the improvement in SHARP. But um, the example that we gave is where we looked at um, your program, Niels, uh, Dunn Capital's um, World Monetary Agricultural um, Program, uh, the WMA program, and we find that uh, there are two things going on. We see that we've got a significant material improvement in the sharp ratio, but also when we look at the compound annual growth rate, we also get a, uh, a significant improvement in the, um, the 60-40. Um, yes, K on the total, total portfolio does improve. Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's quite a material improvement. And what that is is what I'm calling the lifting power of trend following. It's not just that trend following smooths the portfolio program and improves the sharp. It's also... Um, in most instances, um, it's offering lifting power to that portfolio as well, where it's improving the the overall um, net wealth at the end of that that time series. Yeah, and and actually, because we are restricted in terms of talking about specific performance numbers, but what we can say, as you say, yeah, there is an improvement, but there's actually also quite a large improvement, very significant improvement in terms of lowering the drawdown that they compared to a sixty forty portfolio. Um, so, it, you know, and this is, of course, why we all love trend following, because it it is not necessarily uh, magic on in its own, but it has a magical effect on a traditional portfolio of stocks and bonds, without a doubt. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this is just an exercise we did looking at a 20% allocation where we just pulled a number out of the air. What, if, what happens if we do a 20% allocation? But, you know, in our previous podcast, and, uh, you know, I, I remember when... Um, I talked to you about what is the optimal allocation of trend following towards a a, a portfolio that mimics the S&P 500, and I came back to you and said 65%. Well, um, I mentioned to you how I was listening to that Winton podcast the other day, and one of their programs, uh, they've got three programs, one that is 100% trend, another that is 75% trend, and then another that uh, I think is much more uh, multi-strat in form. But anyway, they were talking about how when they talk about a material allocation to trend that, that preserves the great properties of trend following uh, in the actual uh, portfolio that you're allocating towards, you do need to um, allocate a material allocation. And in this case, they were using 75% allocation with equities, in this example, we've been discussing it's only a 20% allocation, but we'll find as we increase the allocation, it just gets better up to a level of about 50%. Um, I'll, give you, I'll give you another uh, little um, way of looking at this because uh, it is, of course, a question that, um, that we get a lot on the podcast. I get a lot to, in, in, in my day job. And, uh, and it is, of course, you know, so how much should I allocate to trend? And I always thought, well... It's kind of a little bit random because it depends on when you start your your you know your simulation of of an allocation, all of those things. So maybe another way of looking at it was to say, well, what if you started just before or just after a crisis? Because that would be kind of extreme starting points, right? Where the allocation between strategies will become quite um, different. So. So I, I do this exercise uh, every month that I update where we look at uh, a starting point just before the tech bubble and then just after the tech bubble finished, so the low of the, 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 the stocks. I think it's October 2002 is the low. 
And then I do it, and then I do a start point um, just before the great financial crisis and just after the great financial crisis. And just to, and of course, this is just simple. We're just optimizing for sharp between, uh, you know, S and P, world government bonds, and then our own trend following strategy. And what you find, which I think is is just so lovely, and that is, if you look at before and after the tech bubble, the allocation to our strategy within that portfolio is almost the same, whether you started before or after. Now, of course, it does change. With ta- it is interesting, right? But it does change, of course, a little bit depending on as we continue to add more data to it, right? And then with uh, ju- before and after the uh, global financial crisis, there's a little bit of variance, um, a little bit more variance between before and after the allocation to 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 done, but it's even more extreme between stocks and bonds because at the moment there are no bonds. If you started after the GFC, so in March of 2009, and you optimize for sharp, you should only have stocks and trend following, no bonds. <laughs> so so well, anyway, so what, what I kind of t- trying to, to communicate to people, and that is to say, and it goes back to an earlier point we talked about as to why you need to have this as a core cal- allocation, because one, you can't time it, so you're going to get caught either up or down if you try and be too clever about it. But actually, the data also suggests that it's the most constant of the components in a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and trend following. Uh, at least when I do the numbers on our, in, in our case, it may not be the same for everyone, but I have a feeling it's probably not uh, you know, that dissimilar. So I just think it's just another little funny way to, for us to, to showcase um, how people can use this and use it very effectively, really, as a portfolio diversifying tool. And as you say, it has lifting power, it, it has uh, risk reduction uh, um, attributes. You know, what's not to like, so to speak? Oh, of course, we know there's a lot of people who don't like it, but from our point of view, it's uh, pretty incredible. Yeah. And look, that gives a good segue into the next topic. So this is where we're looking at uh, people might think the trend following. Uh, we've had this discussion um well, you've had this discussion with Katie Kaminsky and a lot of the um, the program managers where you've talked about crisis alpha. And uh, you've talked about uh, Cliff Asnes's report where he said, is there a responsibility we have to a moral obligation to uh, offer crisis alpha in addition to other trend-following properties? But um, what I'd like to talk about here is I think we need to distinguish ourselves uh, between tail hedging and um, an allocation towards trend following. So, you know, um, we do know that um, um, tail hedging strategies do offer negative correlation during short sharp reversals, like we saw in uh, this month. Sometimes, sometimes. So, okay. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Good point. <laughs> um, but in general, um, tail hedging tends to protect for both short sharp corrections and enduring um, adverse um, crisis periods. However, they give no upside benefits outside of those regimes. And uh, you've actually got to pay the price of those premiums during those beneficial times where you get no benefit from them. Um, so there is an inherent strong cost associated with having tail protection in these strategies, despite the fact they do offer this, this comprehensive protection when uh, your traditional portfolio is suffering. But trend following is a bit different to that. Now, we talk about the uncorrelated nature of trend following to 
other alternative investments uh, or other, other different traditional portfolios. But uh, whilst we term it um, being uncorrelated, we find when we look at the detail, we find that during periods of extended adversity, we do very well. And during periods of extended boom time, we do very well. And what we find is during this adversity where a traditional portfolio is, is suffering, as we've said before, trend following in these protracted periods of crisis do come to the aid. They provide this protective cushioning for that traditional portfolio, and they do help reduce the blow of that adversity. But importantly, that's not the only benefit of trend following. I, th I think that we lose when we don't talk about the benefits during boom times, we lose one of the big great properties of trend following because we can find, for instance, during periods of equity boom time, such as, uh, you know, um, it, it, during some of the periods during uh, 2010 up to 2020, there were some stellar performance times for trend following uh, that were positively correlated with equity. So whilst they might be uncorrelated over the long term, there are periods where we get great negative correlation and there are periods where we get great positive correlation. There isn't this consistent level of uh, uncorrelated nature. And, and the reason for that is that um, when we look at the distribution of returns, we see that trend following tends to work well in those zones of the market regime that are trending towards the tail regions. So that's why during periods of boom or periods of bust, we're heading towards the left and right tails of the market distribution, and we find that the beneficial properties of trend following kick in when we start getting uh, these tail regions evolving. But it's during the, the much more sedate markets where um, the, the, the predictable regimes that are much more noisy, where there are no clear defined trends, that's where trend following doesn't do so well. Uh, but uh, it is important to note that the, the tail properties of both the right and left tail is something we want in every traditional portfolio because that's the weakness of a traditional portfolio in that it doesn't basically incorporate allocations of strategies that offer any degree of protection in those tail regions, either boom or bust. Um, so they might, uh, you know, a portfolio that is heavily dominated in bonds during the equity boom time might find that they go nowhere. Uh, Equity portfolios during periods of bond boom might not go anywhere. Um, so, but the thing about uh, trend following, it's a fascinating strategy, and there's very few like it. There's very few like it that offer this uh, these protective properties as the distribution migrates out towards the tail region. Uh, it's I to me, I far prefer it to tail risk protection because. You get the upside benefit and the downside benefit with trend following. You just get the downside benefit with tail risk protection. And there is a large cost of insurance to protect yourself during those time, other times when your portfolio is doing well. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And, 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 and uh, you know, as I mentioned very early uh, in, in our uh, episode today, uh, the last, uh, last week with Jem, who of course is a volatility expert and one of the best, uh, we did talk about some of these challenges. And of course, at Dunn, we also have a volatility strategy, although it's not a long vol strategy per se, we it is an absolute return strategy. We are trying to make money, uh, um, you know, not just when things go haywire. Um, it is a challenge, uh, without a doubt. Um, so um, I, th I think your points were very well uh, articulated. I have really nothing I can 
I can add to that. Um, do you want to go to uh, point four? Or have we already talked about point four? Well, no, this is a bit of a challenge, Niels, because now what I'm saying is we, we've talked about how Sharp shouldn't be looked, looked at from the individual program perspective, but how perhaps we should be considering the benefits of Sharp at the portfolio level. And we're talking about portfolio Sharp. Now, look, I've still got my concerns there. Now, it is a far better measure portfolio sharp than program sharp. But the reason I've got my concerns is this. Now, um, as you know, Niels, I, I like to classify myself as an outlier hunter. And in in targeting these outliers, um, I do find that my equity curve can have these significant beneficial step-ups in performance. And what I mean by step-ups is we get a, an equity curve that's slowly rising, and then suddenly, with the impact of a beneficial outlier, we get this massive lift in the equity curve. Uh, this this occurs during periods where outliers are prevalent, where our systems are able to capture them. Now, so what I did was I looked at a theoretical portfolio where I said, all right, let's assume over a 20-year horizon, I achieve a 1% return each month. In other words, no losing months, just a 1% return each month. Now, the reason I did that was that I wanted to get a linear progression and then say, when I compound that series, which is going to be a fantastic uh, linear line there, when I compound it, I'm going to get the best of all sharps from that, um, that series. And lo and behold, when I do compound that series of 1% each month and I compound it, I get a sharp of 20, which is massive. We, we, you never get that in reality. That's just a theoretical sharp with a straight line when we compound it. And, and I thought to myself, great, okay, so let's try and demonstrate what is the impact of step-ups, assuming I got that exact same result. So let's say that I insert within that series of you know, um, 1% each month, I insert um, certain outliers in that series where I suddenly go from a string of 1% each month to suddenly a 5% for a particular month, then a, a back to the 1% per month, then we get a 10% for a particular single month, then I go back to that. So you can see that there is still no adverse volatility in that scenario, but I've just inserted outliers into that result, and now I've compounded that result. So when I compare and contrast the compounded Kagar of the, the linear series that I've compounded versus the series with step-ups included in it, I see that the compound annual growth rate of my step-up series is significantly greater than my linear series. So the, the compound annual growth rate of my series with step-ups is 17.4%, yet my compound annual growth rate over the 20 years of my linear series with compounding is 12.6%. However, now when I look at the sharp, I see that my linear series, which had a sharp of 20, has now reduced to a sharp of 1.65. Now, the reason for that dramatic reduction in sharp is because of this beneficial volatility offered by the step-ups. So that makes me concerned when I'm dealing with evaluating portfolios and their performance returns when I'm comparing and contrasting two fairly volatile programs, but one with significant step-ups and another 
that is a much more smoother volatility profile with less beneficial returns because the sharp is naturally going to favour the program with the smoother ascending equity curve rather than the one with the step-ups uh, through the inclusion of a trend-following allocation into that program. So that naturally, therefore, from a decision-making perspective, will shift you away from a decision to allocate towards trend-following these fairly highly volatile programs to choosing an alternative strategy that is much smoother simply to achieve this smooth sharp. So I don't know whether trend-following is doing itself any favours by using the term even portfolio sharp. What do you think? Um, well, you know, as 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 you, as you know, sharp as as you know, sharp as you know, rich. Um, it's not always what we think. It's more what uh, people who look at us think that is the important part, right? And I just believe that most people, uh, most investors who you know, look to allocate to different um, types of strategies um, have this um, very strong love for for sharp. So, so even though I completely agree with you, and this has always been the problem for uh, trend followers, that our positive volatility uh, hurts our sharp. I don't think we can get around it. Now, that shouldn't stop us from trying to come up with some better ways of uh, showcasing the um, the benefits and you and I are trying to do that with, say, you know, this study of how much does it improve the sharp. Interestingly enough, actually, one of our listeners sent me a paper uh, a couple of days ago, and I think it actually uh, relates a little bit to this discussion. I may have to dig it out. Maybe you and I can talk about it uh, in our next conversation. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a challenge, um, like so many other challenges we have in this industry in terms of what's the best way to uh, evaluate the strategy, what's the best way to to uh, present it, I think we just need to continue to educate and make these observations available to uh, everyone looking at it um, so that they can go and do their homework and say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm not too concerned about, you know, trend following only having, and I say only having a sharp of 0.4 or 0.5, uh, which is not a bad number because as we know, probably long-term capital the day before they blew up had a very very high sharp, right? Uh, so 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 as long as people remember that sharp is not a guarantee for for anything, and uh, as 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 we uh, uh, I remember many conversations with with Jerry when we talk about it, where he you know makes a very valid point. It doesn't talk about you know real downside risk, you know the risk of of losing all your money or losing a substantial part of it, and and that's absolutely true. So yeah, these things have to be taken with a grain of salt, but there are certain battles we should take. I think I'm not so sure we should really take the battle about trying to get people to to um, get away from the shop. As as, as you know, I just think that's going to be a, a losing proposition. But but uh, I completely share your concerns, of course, uh, in that sense. All right, we still have a couple of points back, but I don't know if we can really uh, deal with all of them since we've already, even though we had very little time to prepare, we we, we end up, as always, having uh, lots of fun talking about this topic. Um, so I'm going to let you choose what you want to talk about uh, of the last two or three topics that you mentioned, and, um, and then we will slowly wrap things up for today. So where do you want to end up? If we've got to choose, uh, given the fact that 
You've been asking the question in your Top Traders Unplugged series with Alan about uh, the views of the program managers towards replication. I think a, a, a good one would be to look at the performance of DBMF. So I've managed to pull a, a chart together here so that you and I can um, get an understanding of how they're performing lately because the, there has been a question that perhaps there's been a decoupling of deep DBMF with the SGCTA index. But look, what I'm observing from the performance since DBMF's in, inception is that there is no, I can't see a decoupling going on. Um, I can still see Andrew's um, program still performing over the period since inception at a slight uh, premium to the SGCTA index. So I can still see, uh, but I, I do note that there are certain times where uh, we do um, find that uh, they lose their correlated properties. Back in um, February 2019 um, and up in uh, around about um, June 2021, we fi find a, a, a a sort of underperformance of DBMF, which brings it back down closer to the CTA index. And we've also noticed um, in the last few months a deterioration of performance of DBMF, which has brought it um, closer back to the SGCTA uh, index performance, um, but it is still outperforming. So what I do note, though, is that DBMF is more volatile than SGCTA index. So I'd be interested in um, discussing that with you about um, we talk about replication and um, some of the, the the properties that replication bring. And uh, I, I noticed that, um, you know, an argument for replication is that uh, it reduces um, program manager risk by being a replicator across an entire index. But then I do note there were some great comments brought up in some of your um, episodes where they said, well... No, there's still replication risk outside of the program manager risk. So really, we haven't reduced the program manager risk through replication. But um, that's an area I think we can quickly talk about. And the, the higher volatility, I think we can talk about. But you know, I, I do like Andrew a lot. I love his fund. And what, what I really like about it is um, it democratizes the ability of a retail investor to get exposure to some of these big CTAs that otherwise they'd never be able to get involved in. So that's what I do love about Andrew's ETF. Um, but, you know, there are certain things I don't like about replication, one of them being I do see it as a more volatile um, offering than the programs that they're replicating by virtue of the the lags and the, the processes used in the system for replication. I think that leaves them open to a, a higher degree of volatility than the underlying programs. But what do you think, Niels? Yeah. And, and, you know, I think Andrew's, you know, completely fine with you bringing up these points because, of course, one of his uh, selling arguments that he doesn't hold back in sharing is, of course, that, uh, that, that you know, uh, towards us as managers that, oh, yeah, there's a manager risk. Okay. And I think it's perfectly fine for us to push back and say, well, sure, but there's also a replicator risk. I've said that also on my, uh, in, in many episodes. And, and, and so I think that I completely agree with that. Um, then you can say, and again, we're going to try and avoid uh, talking about specific performance numbers, but, but, but you're right. I mean, if we look at this relatively short period, uh, which of course, uh, since inception of, of his program, 
um, which is influenced a lot by this uh, wonderful uh, bond uh, period we've had, both through the upside and then to the downside, which is where most of their exposure uh, tends to be because of the number of markets they trade. So is this a fair uh, representative of the long run? Probably not. I think we can still see some 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 new situations uh, as as we get more data from this. You're also correct that over the long period of time, there's still a little bit of an outperformance. Of course, that's natural um, because one is after fees and the other one is with you know smaller fees, about 95 basis points. I think it is once you include the dividend fee as well, which is not all, always mentioned, but I think it's there. But then you have a 70% larger drawdown. Now, that's a lot. So nothing is for free. <laughs> so even if you can save something on the fees, well, in this case, you, as far as based on the data you, you presented in, in our note prepared, in the notes prepared, you know, the replicator has a drawdown that is 70% bigger than the index. Now you have to accompany, you have to, you have to take that into account. You have to compensate for that. If you are willing to get 70% bigger drawdowns, well, then you should get longer uh, you should get better returns to the upside, I would say. Otherwise, there's definitely no reason for, for having it, except as you rightly point out, which I've made as well as a point. I think these products are wonderful uh, for those who may may not be able to get into the uh, single manager strategies, um, which have much higher minimums. So I think those are the points um, if, uh, I agree with. I, I'd, I'd love to hear Andrew's thoughts uh, when he's back. Uh, in in you know maybe in a couple of weeks he's, we were able to set it up instead uh, since you kindly uh, stepped up um, uh, today for him, but but yeah we should definitely just ask how he how he sees that but more importantly also how some of the um, investors uh, that he speaks to um, think about that because for sure we have to deal with this question about individual manager risk and we will deal with that but but I think also replicators have to deal with some of these question it has to be part of the of the conversation now it is interesting when you see the chart that you prepared when you just compare them that there are these periods where uh, the replicator tends to just pull back to the to the uh, uh, to the index and so you could uh, you could say well then maybe the benefit of replication actually doesn't show up all the time it's very dependent upon when you look at at comparing the two because if it tends to pull back uh, from time to time, you you could essentially be at a point where you have to redeem, and then you're, you know, back to where you came, and and then maybe compared to picking one or two individual managers, and um, you wouldn't see a lot of benefit in in performance. So, but as I said, I think these products are probably for different types of investors. Uh, although I know that there are also a push to get institutional investors involved in these strategies, but. I've always had my concern. Uh, this has nothing to do with this particular product. I do have a massive concern about any product, uh, and then on, you know that will also you know be uh, some of the managers we 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 um, we speak to in our series. When you have products that have no incentive to improve um, because it's a management fee only product, I I I personally wouldn't want to invest in that because I think managers have to have something. There needs to be an alignment uh, between client and and manager, um, and that alignment can't happen if managers are only paid for managing more money, not for delivering great returns and improving those returns over time. 
Um, so that is a general concern that I have, not a specific one to any particular firm. So those are my initial thoughts, Rich. If you wanna, if you wanna counter any of that uh, before we wrap up, feel free. No, I think that covers it, Niels. I think uh, we, we we're on a similar wavelength here in relation to, um, you know, that there are certain good parts about uh, replicators, and there are certain concerns we have about replicators, but. Uh, yeah, it's interesting, and I, I do wish Andrew's firm well um, going forward. And uh, what, what I, I like is that um, I, I'm not seeing a clear decoupling yet uh, between um, the replicator and the index. And I think that, um, you know, uh, of course, during these nasty periods of correction, you know, all of us face difficulty during those periods of um, nasty correction. And, you know, if if Andrew finds he's in a in a regime that's um, very sort of beneficial for the the, the CTAs uh, going forward for the CTA index, I think he'll do very well. Clearly, um, his low cost structure um, does give him a, a significant advantage there. So, yeah, I wish him well. Absolutely. All right, Rich. This was um, very kind of you to to step on uh, step up on very short notice, uh, and I hope that people will appreciate that we. Did, were, we were able to uh, to get an, an episode out this weekend. We try not to miss any weekends, but of course it can happen. But but uh, we had a challenge with personnel, so to speak. Let's call it that. We had a challenge on the technology that didn't quite work initially either. And someone even impersonated me, which you very kindly um, <laughs> alluded me to. Someone has now impersonated my Twitter account uh, by calling it Top Traders Live with an underscore at the end, which is, of course incredibly naughty since he he or she is using all of our uh, branding um so not very happy about that um <laughs> so uh, if if you want feel free to go and flattering and, and it's flattering and and, <laughs> and and report that to twitter because we definitely only want uh, one of those accounts uh, i'm sure anyways enough of that um if you do love these um, conversations and uh, if you do uh, appreciate the time that we are putting into this then please go to uh, toptradersunplugcom forward slash review uh, if you don't know how to go and leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform we so appreciate that and they really do help us get noticed by more people also next week uh, rob is joining me uh, he's back. Uh, he always loves having questions from the uh, from the industry, from the uh, community, uh, and you can of course send them to me at info@toptradersonpod.com. I'll make sure that we get them uh, as many as we can uh, answered by Rob. I think that's pretty much it for that. You should of course follow Rich, follow the right Top Traders uh, Live um, account on Twitter. But of course, more importantly, maybe uh, make sure you follow us uh, on all the podcast platforms as well as youtube nowadays i guess you should say that's it have a wonderful weekend from rich and me thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week and until that time take care of yourself and take care of each other Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.